You know, this morning we started by um, a fill-in-the-blank exercise that this week was carried on by many of our mothers. The question, motherhood is, and the, the greatest part of motherhood is, and the greatest challenge of motherhood is. And So this morning we're going to start our sermon with a very similar kind of fill-in-the-blank question. Not a question, but a statement. A statement that asks, God is. How would you fill in that blank? How would you fill in the blank, God is? You know, we, um, we complete this sentence many times. That we, we teach our children this. This is something that we talk about on a regular basis. God is. A lot of times we'll start with the three omnis, won't we? We'll start with the three omnis. That, uh, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. So we start with those. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere at once. And so we begin with that. And then we start to add with that some virtues. And we put some virtues together like God is love, God is good, God is righteous, God is holy. And so we begin now to add some virtues. And then we start to thinking about some of the descriptions in the Bible. Some of the, the ways that God is characterized. God is warrior, God is king, God is shepherd. And then we have those that are hard to put in a category. Th those qualifications that are important to us, but we don't know how to categorize them. God is light. God is fire. God is testimony. You know, it's, we could go all day long with all the things that the Bible tells us God is. In fact, I found a book this week as I was researching this, and there's a book entitled A Thousand Things That God Is. It's actually titled A Thousand Descriptors of God. But a thousand ways that you could fill in the blank of, of what God is. God is, and there are so many ways that we could answer that particular question. This morning I'm really excited about this topic. Whenever I come up to a topic that um, I, I don't know the subject, I don't know the material, or, or I discover something new, or I find something that I've never noticed the significance of before, it really is impressive. It's exciting to me to, to be in the position of learning something new. And, and when I have the opportunity not only to myself learn something new, but to bring it to you, it brings a, an enthusiasm to my whole week as I'm looking forward to this. And this week, as Bishop and I have been exploring this topic, it's really interesting that there's so much that I wish that we could, um, there's so much that I wish that we could share that just is going to find itself on the cutting room floor. Stuff that we're not going to be able to discuss. But I'm excited for what we are going to share. How do we answer the question God is? Well, the first thing I would like to suggest is that we start with this one. Because I think this is an important one. This is one that we all know very well. John chapter 4 and verse 24. God is spirit. So when we say God is spirit, what exactly are we saying? What does that mean exactly? Well, for one thing, God is not determined by limitations. God is not determined by limitations. We as humans really have no idea what that's like. Our entire world, our entire existence is about limitations. We know more about ourselves by what we can't do than what we can do. We know more about ourselves by what we're not than what we are. Limitations are just a natural expression of being flesh, of being human, of being physical. And God is the exact opposite of that. In every possible way, God is the exact opposite of limitations. God is an existence completely devoid of any constraints and restraints. Constraints. Things that are pressed from the outside that limit. Restraints. Things that are self-imposed. God has no limitations. God is completely limitless, unfettered, and unrestricted. And I think you'll agree with me, our existence is limited. It is fettered, and it is restricted. There's a huge difference between us being flesh and God being spirit. 
And God as spirit has some real challenges because it's really hard for us in a human's perspective, in a fleshly perspective, to be able to understand what does it mean to be spirit. What does it mean that God is spirit? We're limited. We're limited by things like language. We're limited by things like our intellect. We're limited by things like our biology to be able to understand what it's like to be spirit. We'll go into more of that in just a moment. But let me tell you, while it's true that God is limitless, it's interesting how often he tells us who he is by telling us what he's not. It's interesting how often God tells us who he is and what he is by what he is not. Now, he's not constrained. He's not restrained. No one is limiting him, and he's not limiting himself. But the reality, his character lends itself to polar opposites. God is light. Therefore, it can be said that God is not dark. God is good. Therefore, it can be said that God is not evil. And sometimes he even describes himself in these very terms, because many times he tells us what he is not. One of the most famous of these is found in Numbers chapter 23. And this is a theme that we're going to see over and over and over through this lesson. Read with me as I, you have it up here on the slide. God is not human, that he should lie. Not a human being, that he should change his mind. How does he speak and not act? How does he promise and not fulfill? You see, he sets off this premise by saying, God is not human, and we as humans have a limitation of understanding what that's going to be like. But he tells us, let me be clear with you people, I'm not. I'm not human. That's not the boundaries and the limits under which I operate. We're going to see a recurring theme here for the next couple of slides. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. Listen, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Get used to hearing this verse. You're going to hear it again. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 9. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being. We see it again as we look at Job chapter 9 and verse 32. He who is the glory of God does not, you begin to see how this works, right? Over and over and over. What's he saying? I, God says, am not human. Therefore, I can't be combined into the categories that you understand humanity to be bound by. This is where some interesting ideas come. Because the symbolic language that we have in Scripture, the, the symbolic language in Scripture tells us what God is and tells us what God is not. And this is going to be very important as we unfold this message today, as we understand what it means that we are human and He is not. And for us to try to impose our human practicalities, our human limitations on God, is an abject failure in understanding and experiencing who God is. Because we are restrained by our language, there are some things that become very challenging about understanding who God is. Let me give you a quick example of that. We have this picture right here <coughs> in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In verse 4, God gives us this uh, description of himself. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. This descriptor of God is a very beautiful and picturesque, a poetic even kind of descriptor of God. And as we look at this closely, what we find is we have five adjectives. This isn't going to be a, a language lesson, so just bear with me for 30 seconds and we'll get back to the lesson. But five adjectives, perfect, just, faithful, upright, and just. Five adjectives, one direct object, no wrong. And here, one metaphor, metaphor. My family makes fun of me for the way I say metaphor. 
And if I'm going to get through this lesson without in, in getting chuckles from this side of the audience all the time, I'm going to have to say metaphor. And one metaphor, and that is the rock. What's interesting is six of these statements are literal, and one of these statements is symbolic. One of these statements is symbolic, and all of them tell us something about him. For example, let's look. God is a rock, but no one's actually confused that God is a rock. We all understand that. We all understand how symbolic language works. We understand the limitations of language, and we understand how language works. This is a metaphor. That's what this is. This is a picture of something symbolically that is. It's not really, but it is symbolically. Why does this work? Because we know that God embodies the properties of rock. We know that he embodies everything that it means to be a rock. Resilience, strength. Power, might, permanence, immovability. These are the qualities of a rock. And these are also qualities that God possesses. So God's a rock, but no one's confused that God is actually a rock. Let's move then to something a little bit more personal. God as father figure. God as Father figure, one of the most common, one of the most powerful, one of the most poignant metaphors that God uses in all of Scripture for himself is God as Father. And yet, we all understand what he's saying. The image of Father invokes images and pictures like protection and provision and instruction and wisdom and respectability. That's what we think of when we think of fatherhood. And yet, God is certainly not only those things, but much more and we all recognize that God is not actually a father. In the same way that God is not literally a rock, God is not literally a father. We call him the father of Jesus, but he's not the progenitor of Jesus. He didn't come first. Jesus wasn't created by him. We call Jesus the son of God, and, and Jesus wasn't born of God. He wasn't the progeny of God. He wasn't made later than God. What are we saying? God embodies all the perfect qualities of fatherhood. And Jesus embodies all the perfect qualities of sonship. Submission, respect, obedience, love, a desire to please the Father. And so this idea of a metaphor is something that's clearly given to us in Scripture. And it's very, very important. Take, for example, this verse which combines two of our metaphors that we've looked at so far. You neglected the rock who had fathered you. You neglected the rock who had fathered you. We know that he's not a rock. He's not a, a piece of geological substance that makes up the earth's crust. We also know that he's not a human male who has brought forth offspring. So we understand what this is saying to us. But here's where things get interesting. If we follow that all the way through, we have to get to a point where we recognize that if God is not human, then he's not male nor female, but both are from God. Here's really where the meat of this lesson falls. And here's the stuff that I didn't know anything about this week. Here's the stuff that I found myself constantly just reading through scripture like, really? I am literally this many years old before I found this stuff out. It is just amazing to get my eyes around this. God is not human, therefore he's not limited by our limitations. He's not limited by our biology. Eric Noss, who's a brilliant writer, wrote this little paragraph. I'm just going to read it to you straight from his words. To be sure, Jesus in his human nature was male. 
it is also true that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are consistently referred to in the Bible with the male personal pronoun, he. As such, it is biblically faithful to refer to God as he. Totally true. And he delights in revealing himself by way of a number of male metaphors, such as husband and father. However, we must never make the mistake of claiming that God in his divinity is intrinsically male. The Bible is clear that God is spirit, John 4, 24, we just looked at that. As such, he is not gendered. When we call him father, we do not mean that he is male, like human fathers. We mean that he relates to us like a human father. Provides for, protects, leads, disciplines, so on and so forth. Matthew 6, Matthew, uh, James 6, Hebrews 12, many verses here the author shows to demonstrate that. Likewise, when the Bible speaks of a husband, it does not claim that God is male, but that God jealously guards his relationship, Hosea chapter 2. On and on we could go, I won't read the rest of it, I just want to get to this point. We must never, he says, we must never make the mistake of claiming that God and his divinity is intrinsically male. In fact, the reality is, God created gender. God created gender, and we know the story in which he did so. He did so right here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Go on from there in verse 27. He created mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. What's so interesting about this is he does not say, let us create males in our image, and then later on, we'll create females who are not in our image. That's not what it says. It says male and female created forms the image of God. He created in this moment gender. And here's how I know that. Because this is the story of creation. If God was already male, then this isn't creation. This is replication because he's just bringing forth more of what he already is. He's creating something very new. Gender is new. It is a creation. And therefore, by definition, it can't be what he is. Creation cannot be greater than its creator. And creation must be, by definition, something new. So in this moment, God is creating something that has never been before, male and female. But what's interesting is in male and female together, we have the perfect imaging of God. Male and female together are the perfect imaging of God. Neither by themselves can alone represent God fully. God created mankind in his own image male and female, and there is the God image displayed. So why does it take two genders to demonstrate the image of God? Well, not to get, well, hello, not to get terribly theological with this, but that's actually very much in keeping with what we already know about God, right? God is already three in one. God is already celebrating unity in diversity. Three clearly recognized members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come together to make one God. And in the same way, male and female, individually recognizable, unity in diversity, male and female come together 
to make the image of God in his creation. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. Maleness and femaleness together demonstrate the qualities of their triune creator. Male by themselves do not demonstrate all the qualities of God. Female by themselves do not demonstrate the qualities of God. It is them together. We already mentioned this idea of God as the father figure. And we recognize that the roles, responsibilities, virtues, qualities of what it means to be a father are clearly demonstrated in God. We don't have any problem with that. We were raised from the time we were very little understanding God the Father and here's the reasons why we call God the Father and here's all the ways that he is our Father. But if God is fully imaged in male and female, then doesn't it reason, doesn't it stand to make sense that the qualities of God are not limited to what we consider masculine qualities? That the qualities of God are demonstrated in feminine qualities. Because that's what he told us he was using to image himself in his world. <clears throat> Abigail Dolan, who is herself a brilliant writer, did a lot of reading of hers this week. And she wrote this paper entitled, Imagining a Feminine God. And, uh, and in this paper, she points out that the Bible clearly and often demonstrates that virtues and roles and qualities, things that we would have limited by language and gender, are actually very feminine qualities of God. What I'm going to do is take a couple of minutes here and we're going to walk through a couple of examples in the Bible, first in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, of how it is that God reveals himself in this way. And what that means for women, for, for womanhood, for mothers, for motherhood in our world today. His qualities in feminine expression. Let's go back to one that we already, oh, sorry. Let's go back to one that we already looked at. You neglected the rock who had fathered you. We already talked about this. The image of rock, the image of father. But look at the next line. Who had given birth to you? God here is portraying himself in the role of mother. Giving birth to his people. He, in this one passage, is giving himself a metaphor of rock, a metaphor of father, and a metaphor of mother. He's saying, I have the qualities of rock. I have the qualities of father. I have the qualities of mother. And like I said, these are things I had never given attention to. And once I started seeing them, I started seeing them everywhere. Truth be told, once Bishop started pointing them out to me, I started seeing them more and more places. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 12. Did I give birth to them? Did I carry them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? Do you notice here the imagery? God himself is saying, I am like a mother to my people. I am a mother figure to my people. I have these feminine qualities and these feminine virtues and they are expressing themselves in the way that a mother would. I'm, over, I'm superseding what you know to be the limits of gender. And I'm showing you that I am imaged in your world by the qualities that you would call feminine qualities, by qualities that you would call maternal qualities. In, in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 13, <coughs> I will comfort you in Jerusalem as a mother comforts her child. We could go on and on and on. Let me read each one of these individually and take a long time. I won't really do that. I'm just kidding. But we just have here an example of all these different things. Like a mother eagle. Can a mother forget her baby? You brought me out of your womb. You brought me out of your womb. Like a mother bear. Like a woman in childbirth. A weaned child with its mother. Since your conception. Carried you in the womb. Um, like a slave girl watching her mist. That right there is a really beautiful picture. 
won't take time to look at that right now. But that's a really beautiful and powerful image, Psalm 123. May the Lord God of Israel under her wings, under which you have come to take refuge. So many of these expressions. And I got to tell you, they all just went straight over my head for all these years. I never stopped to think of these in terms of what they were really saying. God's saying, I relate to my masculine, I relate to my feminine, and together the masculine and feminine qualities that I, God, possess are imagined into this world, are shown into this world by the beauty of both genders. Those are some examples. Let me give you a couple of real quick concepts. Old Testament concept, this one is just amazing to me. One of God's most favorite ways of referring to himself and one of the most common ways in the Old Testament that God is referred to, El Shaddai, a powerful, poignant name of God. And that name of God has a really interesting root. It has a really interesting root because it goes back to a a, a statement of nourishment, the kind of nourishment that only a mother, only a mother can give to a child. You know, to us, we don't know that. I read El Shaddai a hundred times and had no idea that it was a a feminine term, that it was a a female term. I had no idea that that's the way it was. But you know, to the ancient Jews, they understood this wholeheartedly. They recognized this. They could see clearly that this was a feminine term. And I think in some ways, they probably had a better grasp of a fully-orbed picture of God than you and I have today. Let's look at one more. I love this one. I won't even begin to try to pronounce these two words. Our word and our word. There they are. And you can see them up there on the screen. <coughs> but these two words here are both words used for the Old Testament in the feminine. Interestingly, I learned this this week. This is really fascinating. In a lot of countries, in a lot of Christian churches all around the world, in other parts of the world, the Holy Spirit is always depicted as, a, as female. The Holy Spirit is always depicted as female. In fact, in, in many, many places, the Syriac, uh, the Syriac faith, for example, very, very solidly, when it talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, she, he, because it's always referred to as the feminine. Why? Because that's what the word actually means. The word that we use in the Old Testament, we'll see in a moment, the word we use in the New Testament to refer to the Holy Spirit is a feminine term. Not only that, what's interesting is, in our language, the subject and the pronouns all match. Sue Darby is my wife, and therefore she is married to me. And, and, and we have she and her, subject, pronoun. In Hebrew, it's the verbs connecting to the subject. The verbs have a feminine and a masculine. And any time the Holy Spirit is the subject, the verbs are all feminine. You see, to the ancient Jews, they understood God is presenting himself fully in man and woman and all that he made both of us to be. It's the modern church that struggles to grasp what they understood wholeheartedly. Real quick, time's getting away, but I promise we're going to go fast. Take a look at this, some New Testament examples. Some New Testament examples. And believe me, of all the stuff that we are going to talk about this morning, I've got so much more that I wish we could. I really do. If I had my way, this would be four weeks but I don't think anybody's going to let me give four weeks on this topic. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent you, how often I would have longed to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under wings. I don't know much about chickens, but I don't think roosters do a lot of gathering. I think hens do a lot of gathering. And Jesus here is saying, I, Jesus Christ, am putting myself in the role of a mother in putting in the role of a, fem- of a feminine character. This one's really interesting. In Luke chapter 15, 
of all the ways that God could portray himself in parables. And we think of God portraying himself in parables in very masculine ways. Uh, you think about, for example, the prodigal son. You've got the story of the prodigal son, right? And you've got the father who's standing on the porch waiting for the son to come back. And when the son does come back, he throws open his arms and he receives his son back with love. And we all can clearly see that's obviously God in that story. What about in this story? A woman who has ten silver coins and loses one. Who's God in this story? This is, this is very, very uh, fly in the face of a highly patriarchal society that God casts himself in the role of a woman. He casts himself in the role of a woman, and why does he do it? Because he understands what we understand. That femininity, womanhood, motherhood have unique qualities associated with them. And the thing that we're discovering through this lesson today is that God embodies each of those. One more conceptual idea. Well, two more conceptual ideas. One, the word Sophia. Another way that God describes himself in the New Testament, another way that God is mentioned is, is this word that means wisdom. And again, we have this picture, this word wisdom. Just like El Shaddai in the Old Testament, Sophia, wisdom in the New Testament, is a picture of God that is a thoroughly feminine picture. In fact, that same word Sophia is something that later in the New Testament is called Logos. Logos and Sophia, two words that mean wisdom. And if you'll remember from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, Logos, and the word was Christ, Jesus. He was the one. He is the Logos. What we have is this beautiful picture that the Logos, the word, the wisdom of the Old Testament, Sophia, becomes the Logos of the New Testament, the word, and the word is Jesus Christ, which leads to this amazing statement that I read once again going back to Abigail Dolan. The living Christ is not limited to male or female form. This is important for us to understand. The living Christ, the Christ today, is not limited to male or female form, just as God himself is not limited to male or female form, though the historical, physical Jesus was. The eternal presence of Christ in the life of Christians is not bound by human gender because God transcends the limitation of male and female. The point is God is not male, nor is God female. But male and female together are from God. And in male and female together, we get a better picture of God. God is, clearly in Scripture, portrayed as the father figure. And rightly so. Because the responsibilities and roles and qualities and virtues of fatherhood, he perfectly demonstrates. But God also reveals himself as a mother figure. And the roles and responsibilities and qualities and virtues of perfect motherhood are also beautifully expressed in the truth of God's character. So what does that mean? God can relate to fathers and we can relate to God as father. And God can relate to mothers. And mothers can relate to God. And that's where this Mother's Day offers us a really great opportunity to kind of set the whole picture square. If God is fully imaged in male and female together, and if God is fully described in fatherhood and motherhood together, then let me say something to the mothers this morning. I want you to think about what that means. What that means is that when you exhibit 
your feminine maternal qualities, you are exhibiting something very, very precious about God himself. Mothers, what that says to you is that God has entrusted to you the care of a virtue that is expressly his. That he gave you a special part of himself to live out in the world. And that if mothers don't demonstrate that quality, there are things that this world will never understand about God because he's given it to you to impart. A beautiful part of who God is is wrapped up in what you do every day as mother. And his extended role of nurture and compassion and love and instruction and nourishment and devotion and relentless selflessness are caught up in what it means by the task that you undertake every single day that we call mother. God said, let us make mankind in our image and male and female, he made them. Mothers, thank you for being God's image bearer in a world that so desperately needs it. Thank you for being his reflected nature. Thank you for being his presence in the world in a way that uniquely is yours to do. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for our mothers. We thank you so much for the blessing in our lives and for all the ways that you demonstrate your goodness through them in unique ways that they are uniquely qualified to present. May we empower, may we, may we love, may we support, may we encourage our mothers to be all that you desire them to be, that they might image you to a world that desperately needs a better understanding of you as a complete God. God, we thank you for this time together in your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You know, this morning as I was thinking about sitting in my office before our elders Bible study this morning, reflecting on a passage of scripture from Galatians chapter 3, studying Galatians for a, a journey group that I'm going to be leading Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know one of the great qualities of being a Christian is the unifying aspect of what it means to be together to be together as a family, to be together as a community of believers, to be together as the kingdom of God, to be together as the church, but most importantly, to be together as Christ's. The distinctions of this, of this life fall away when we find ourselves coming up out of the waters of baptism, a new creation, cleansed, our past sins forgiven, and named him, clothed in him, added to his family. And it's that Unity in diversity that he celebrates in his presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And it's that same unity in diversity that we celebrate every time somebody else is added to the family of God. This morning, we want you to know that if you have any needs at all, you have, you have 
prayers that you would like to share, needs that you have that you would like us to bring before God, uh, a desire to step forward in your, in your walk with Christ, or maybe you're ready to put him on in baptism, however we can help you. Our leaders stand right here in the back of this room during this last song, and we'd love to meet with you and help you in any way that we can. We're glad you're here. Happy Mother's Day. Let's stand and sing.